0: Well, hello. <laughs> it's not that we haven't talked in a long time. We have, but we were kind of distracted working on Pardon Me, another damn impeachment share. We finally put that uh, creature to bed forever, I guess, or until the next impeachment anyway, uh, about a week ago. We had a little period of rest. And now we're back. We're ready to go. Uh, and uh, we've got a pretty exciting show for you. A little bit later, we're going to be talking about COVID-19, which, by the way, is also what we're going to start calling it. Coronavirus is kind of misleading. We'll also talk about cheating, uh, whether or not uh, an an epidemic of cheating in sports kind of maps onto certain other things that we could just maybe think about off the top of our heads out there in the non-sports world. But right now, one of the big stories from the weekend is the continuing rise of the Bernie balloon. And here to talk about that is Edward Isaac Dover, a staff writer for The Atlantic and host of The Ticket Podcast. Uh, Welcome to our show. I'm excited to talk to you.
1: It's
0: great to be here. So I guess maybe let's we should do a little bit of kind of horse racing game theory stuff right now. Okay. Um, and and so we'll start there, right? So the way that it looks, uh, obviously, uh, pending South Carolina, is that uh, Sanders seems to be picking up momentum. Although, as you write. And as many have observed, in kind of, for the most part, not particularly representative states, I mean, if you wanted to pick some states to be predictors of the overall electorate or the nominatorate, uh, you wouldn't necessarily pick those three.
1: Well, certainly when you look at Iowa and New Hampshire, the first two states that got to vote in this, uh, those are not states that demographically or geographically, uh, in in any real way, represent what the country looks like as a whole and what the Democratic uh, electorate looks like as a whole. Uh, Nevada, which uh, had its caucuses on Saturday, is much closer, both in terms of uh, the non-white population that's there uh, and in terms of the fact that there are... As uh, There is a major city and a smaller city in Las Vegas and Reno there, uh, no major cities in, in either New Hampshire or in Iowa, with no offense meant to Des Moines or Manchester. But uh, that puts Sanders in a position where even though he has not had to face a majority of Democratic voters at this point. He has done very well in the contests that have been so far, Uh, even though when you add it all up, he's gotten about uh, roughly under 200,000 votes. Uh, That, though, of course, is more than anyone else has gotten, and especially with everybody else trying to position themselves as the Sanders alternative and fighting with each other as they do, that puts Sanders in a very strong position.
0: Right. And success feeds your polls. Pulls in turn, feed your success. So that's all. That that particular feedback loop, I think, is working pretty well for him right now. Is it fair to say now that the second most probable scenario after Sanders entering the convention with a majority of delegates, that the second most probable scenario is no one entering the convention with a majority of delegates, as opposed to, say, one of the other candidates overtaking him somehow?
1: Well, if things continue at this pace, and guessing how this stuff will go is is right. not something that I would try to do. But if we continue to have vote counts that go like this, then what that would mean is Sanders would not show up at the convention with a majority of delegates, but that he would have what looks like a plurality of delegates, more than anyone else. Maybe thirty-five, forty percent delegates, maybe a little bit more than that if uh, if he starts doing better uh, than he has been, but. That is uh, an issue that the, the Democratic Party is going to have to try to figure out what to do about, because not only is it the rules of the convention that you need to get the nomination with a majority, uh, and therefore it could lead to some kind of a floor fight, uh, but Sanders himself is a... a is a hard figure for a lot of people in the Democratic Party to accept. He is not a Democrat. He has an agenda that is popular with his uh, corner of the Democratic Party, but is not supported by a lot of other Democrats, Uh, whether it's about Medicare for all or uh, his Democratic Socialist view of the government's role in the economy. All those things uh, put him out of sync with uh, a lot of Democrats who are not his Democrats. So, yes, he's getting 30, 35, 40 percent. But that does mean that there are uh, a majority of people who are not voting for him at this point. Um, And if you look at New Hampshire, for example, uh, he won uh, almost uh, 100,000 votes fewer in 2020 than he did in 2016. His campaign would say that that's because there are more people in the race and it'll shake out better for him. But we don't know if that's the case yet.
0: Right. So, well, there's so much I want to ask about here. So, um, one of the questions would be um, one of the resistances, areas of resistance at the convention, might be, you know, it creates a lot of down-ticket issues too, right? You got U.S. Senate races, you got congressional races, you got uh, various kinds of uh, state legislative races. Virtually every candidate in any one of those races will be asked in the first three questions in almost any situation, "Do you support Bernie Sanders?" Uh, You know, if if he's the if he's at the of the ticket. You have to explain yourself in terms of that person, maybe in a way that a lot of candidates don't feel like having to do.
1: Yeah. And already you see some of the candidates, uh, Democratic candidates in races that they are desperate to win for the Senate uh, have said that they do not support Sanders on on a number of issues, including Medicare for all. For example, Mark Kelly, uh, who is the um, uh, the candidate in Arizona to flip a Senate, uh, former astronaut, that's right, married to Gabby Gifford uh, and is hoping to flip a, a, the Senate seat there in Arizona. Uh, he has said he doesn't support Medicare for all. He's not the only one. Every one of the places where you have a Democratic candidate in a uh, state that they're hoping to flip uh, and and when it's already clear which th- that there's not a primary that needs to be had uh, has said that they don't support Medicare for all. that creates uh, an issue for them politically um, it also creates an issue for Sanders politically because part of the argument that he makes is that his election would lead to a revolution a uh, uh, change in who uh, who would be elected and and what they would support once they were elected. It does not seem like that would happen if he's at the top of the ticket and uh, the people who are running in those seats are, are all elected come November.
0: Let's, let's run another scenario. Okay, so Bernie comes to the convention with a plurality, but not a majority, but let's say a high plurality. Uh, you've got superdelegates at the convention. That's what they're there for from a certain perspective that if, in fact, institutionally, the Democratic Party just doesn't feel like going into battle with Bernie at the top of the ticket, what are the things superdelegates are there to do? And, And I think it's probably fair to generalize and say, overall, most of the superdelegates are maybe going to be looking for somebody else, you know, unless the weather really changes a lot. But you've also got a problem with Bernie Sanders supporters who already feel persecuted, excluded, marginalized. So if you had some kind of deal that took place at the convention that didn't keep Bernie at the top, you have all kinds of potential revolts, don't you?
1: Potentially, yes. The superdelegates at this point, uh, because of the change of the rules, they used to get to vote uh, for the nominee right when the convention started. Now, they only get to vote if there is not a nominee chosen on the first ballot. So so they get to vote on the second ballot now. It's about 750 uh, party officials like state party chairs and uh, members of the House and Senate, those kinds of things. essentially party elders, although not all of them are old. Um, (laughs) And they would get to vote. They can vote for whoever they want to. Uh, The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that any of the delegates can vote for whoever they want to. There's this idea out there that sometimes candidates say, like, I release my delegates, as if it's like uh, some (laughs) gladiator contest. (laughs) But that that doesn't, that's not actually how it works. Uh, They usually, uh, if they are if they are there, they have been chosen by the campaign that that uh, won those delegate spots. But just because uh, a candidate chooses a person to be a delegate, that does not mean that that person has to vote for that candidate. and The person could choose uh, change his or her mind. Uh, and of course, The primary process is going to be done in June. There is not a convention until the middle of July. It is possible that we're going to be looking ahead to six weeks or so of kind of frantic deal-making ahead of the convention so that technically it won't be a contested convention, but there might be contested times in between the end of the primaries and the convention.
0: So um, another sort of quick game theory question about all this. So in some ways— if you're imagining a contested convention and you're one of the candidates uh, who, who remains in the field, you have kind of an, in- an incentive to stay in. You have less of an incentive to drop out than you might ordinarily have when the dashboard light starts blinking red. You might think, "Oh, I'll just keep the car going a little bit further if I can get to the convention, you know, <laughs> right. if I can just make it there. The problem with that, and, and this is another thing that only dawned on me recently, is that in order to collect enough delegates that are not... Not Bernie delegates, to keep Bernie from having a majority before the convention starts. Some of these candidates have to hit 15% in caucuses and primaries. That's how you qualify for delegates. If you've got too many candidates in the field fighting over the same scraps of meat, there's a chance that they're all going to wind up with 8s and 9s and 11s and 12s. And Isaac, that's not so good if, in fact, your goal is to not have Bernie uh, in charge by the time the convention starts.
1: That's right. If the the aim here is for Bernie Sanders to not be the nominee, it does seem to be that the candidates are going to have to do something different than what they've been doing so far. Uh, <laughs> if If they don't have a problem with Sanders making his way to the convention with a plurality of delegates, Uh, then, as they've been doing it so far, they can keep at it. But uh, this is a point where, in the race where it does seem like some candidates are going to have to drop out if they're going to want to change things. Other candidates are going to have to be a lot more aggressive in going after Sanders if they want to change things. But if you continue things at this pace, it's hard to see how it doesn't, keep going that Sanders racks up the delegates, and as you point out, the game theory of this goes on, uh, and the primaries end, and he's got 35-40% of the delegates uh, with 35-40% of the voting, and uh, that's enough for him.
0: So. I'd like to sort of sort of get, take your temperature on what kind of temperature you're getting from Democrats that you talk to right now. So, you know, we, we get these reports back. You know, at one point, I think John Kerry was overheard saying maybe he should run. Bernie's going to pull the whole party down with him. Um, there's a thought that maybe Bloomberg is the guy who can stop Bernie in his tracks. But is stopping Bernie necessarily all that desirable? Is it possible that Bernie brings in a bunch of voters who might not otherwise? wise participate, that he activates a part of the Democratic base that isn't always counted when the Democrats are mentally counting their base.
1: It's uh, not only possible, but you see some evidence of that already with what he has done in these first... Not as much evidence as the Sanders campaign was hoping for, particularly in Iowa, where Mm his, I mean, he almost won the Iowa caucuses in in 2016. And uh, he expanded slightly in some groups, but overall, the turnout that they were hoping for among younger people and among the Latino population of Iowa, which is present but not huge, uh, or not even. Uh, big, not even moderate, <laughs> medium-sized. <laughs> <in Iowa. laughs> um, but that, that expansion didn't happen so much, and it didn't happen in New Hampshire. There was an expansion of his electorate in Nevada on Saturday, and you see uh, a lot of uh, Latino voters that were moving toward him uh, and uh, people who were not traditional voters, people who who have been turned on by him. This is an argument that the Sanders campaign makes over and over again, that there is uh, that he can appeal to people that others can not appeal to. The other side of it is, and they're not so subtle in saying this, it's a sort of cynical but realistic argument that there are people who will only vote for Bernie Sanders and uh, won't be there for another candidate. So they they argue that the strongest thing to do for the Democrats would be to get all the people who are voting for the Democratic anyway or voting against Donald Trump anyway, and these people who only vote for Bernie Sanders, and you put that together and they say, that's math that gives you more votes than you'd have otherwise. The issue that other people in the Democratic Party would point to is that it is not uh, at all... Uh, reliably the case to assume that everybody who would vote uh, for another Democratic candidate would vote for Sanders, whether that means some Democrats who might be uncomfortable with him or uh, and would either choose to stay home or maybe vote for Trump, but more likely stay home, or Republicans and independents who have been turned off by Trump who would maybe vote for a different candidate in the race, but wouldn't vote for Sanders. And Either of those scenarios plays out to Trump's advantage.
0: Well, just for fun, let's hear from one of those uncomfortable people. This is Billy from Middletown. He's a lifelong Democrat, but I sense he is my—he might be one of these uncomfortable people. So, Billy, uh, who just called into the show, what happens uh, if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the Democratic ticket? What happens for you?
2: Well, I have to support him because uh, that's just, I, I have to, but I'll not be happy about it. Um, I have a lot of friends in the Democratic Party, and not one of them, it's probably like 10, 12 people, um, are happy with, um, with Bernie Sanders, so you don't really feel he's a Democrat at all. They feel used by him, and um, I have called all of my elected representatives to let them know that there is a small group of us who are unhappy, and before I get off, I have to compliment you on your Laura Nero show. That was fantastic.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We're very proud of that, too. Thanks so much uh, for that. So, Isaac, I mean, I think another thing that's happening here, too, is that Bernie's Bernie's great virtue is also Bernie's great vice, uh, and and that is that he does speak his mind. He he does say he's he's less, I think, accusable of couching things and focus grouping things than a lot of candidates are. But let's hear what that sounds like. Cat, can we display uh, a one here? We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba, but you know, you got it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did he had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did
3: it? A lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Canada. That's right,
0: and we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you want to, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. All right. So, uh, Isaac, you know, you and I might basically agree with the sentiment of that, that, you know, compared to some autocrats in the world, Castro, at least, has gotten a few things domestically accomplished. Um, On the other hand, Kenneth, that's like a soundbite. It's going to get cut up into commercials. I mean, he he said something that he really believed. That isn't always great.
1: Yeah. And you can see that there is uh, already a question of what that might mean for the votes in Florida, uh, of course, where there is a large Cuban population. That itself is tricky. People make assumptions about how the Cuban population votes as if it votes overall in one way. Uh, and even among Cubans in Florida, there's a, a divide mostly along generational lines between older Cubans who are much more anti-Castro and much more uh keeping the embargo uh, on Cuba than younger Cubans. These get really complicated. But look, Sanders has been consistent over the years in being a skeptic of American foreign policy decisions in a lot of respects, and in being defensive of Socialist programs and socialist leaders around the world, whether that's Castro um, or uh, to the communist regime in the former Soviet Union. He said he, he has been, uh, there are records of him, video of him saying that uh, there are positives to be seen in that system. Uh, more lately, he has talked more about. Finland and, and Denmark and those sorts of uh, European socialists.
0: Uh, yeah. Much better to countries. go. Much better to go with the Scandinavian countries. Um, uh, Isaac, we have to end it there. Edward Isaac Dover, staff writer at the Atlantic, host of the Ticket Podcast. People, nice people, are going to ask you uh, to support this station. Please do it. Please do it now. It means a lot, particularly in terms of the station, but also our show and our mission and everything like that. If you chime in, so and we'll be back uh, in just a few minutes with some um, uh, information about. Covid
4: nineteen, and you're listening to the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Alpatanshul here with Tucker Eyes, waiting on your call of support at one It twenty seven eighty eight. It is our winter membership campaign. We we're laughing. technically <laughs>
3: technically the winter <laughs> membership. I'd,
4: campaign. I'd rather be outside right now, but
3: <laughs> it is a winter a winter membership <laughs> campaign that it feels like we should be in maybe Virginia. True. 61 degrees outside right now.
4: But well, we're asking for your call of support to uh, support the Colin McEnroe Show because you listen. And we've got some great thank you items, which uh, it's kind of funny. We have this new Connecticut public beanie for, for colder weather.
3: Maybe at night. It's a good beanie <laughs> for at night when the temperature drops. It's Black, You blend right in. I don't know if that's what you want to do at night, but uh, I like it as a beanie. It's just a little warm out right now for it. That's all.
4: So it's a waffle knit black beanie with the Connecticut Public Station logo, which is the blue P. So if you see that around, that's what that's what it is. But again, for a gift of ten dollars a month to support Connecticut Public Radio, the number to call 1-800-584-2788. We're just doing this for this week, and we're trying to raise fifteen hundred dollars this hour, and I think that you can help us get there at 1-800-584-2788.
3: When you pledge $10 a month to support Connecticut Public Radio, you can get not one of these Connecticut Public beanies, but you can get two of them. And all this week, for every pledge for this new item, we will also donate a hat and pair of gloves to a Hartford Public School student. And today only, that means that that'll be doubled. So uh, you will be able to send two sets of hats and gloves to a Hartford Public School student. So uh, now's a great time to show your support of Connecticut Public Radio, do something good for the community, and help us out right now, 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. also, when you call now, hopefully with the pledge, or when you donate online at WNPR.org, just click on the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a getaway at the Study at Yale in New Haven. Uh, this is a very nice hotel down in New Haven. We've done some shows down there over the years. And you'll receive overnight accommodations for two, breakfast for two at Heirloom Restaurant, and two tickets to a performance at the Yale Repertory Theater. Uh, So if you are already a sustaining donor to Connecticut Public Radio, you are automatically... Uh, entered into this contest. But if you are not a sustaining member, if you would like to become one, if you would like to join us, we would be happy to enter you into that drawing as well. 1-800-584-2788.
4: That sounds like a great drawing uh, to be entered into. But again, we're waiting on your call of support. Unfortunately, the computer that we (laughs) (laughs) we look at uh, that tells us who's calling and why they're supporting is not working. If you are
3: anxiously (laughs) awaiting us to thank you on air for your contribution, uh, our deepest apologies will get you later.
4: But we're hoping that you still call at 1-800-584-2788. We know that our operators are standing by. A lot of you listen to our live stream at wmpr.org. It's a great way to catch up to the Colin McInerney Show and so much of the other great program we have, programming we have here at a Connecticut Public. And when you go to the website, wmpr.org, you can also put in your pledge of support there. There's an easy link at the top of the homepage. And it also lists all the great thank you items as well. So please uh, don't wait. We know that you learned so much from the Colin McEnroe Show. Colin and his team working uh, very hard each and every day to provide uh, you uh, great conversations, great information, uh, not only about the election season, but so much more. That's why you listen. And if you have yet to support us in this new year, 2020, now's the time. 1-800-584-2788 or WMPR.org.
3: And I would encourage you, if you do go online to make that pledge of support, to also check out some of the other work that's being done. We have started to invest heavily into visuals, so we are hoping to make it more than just radio that we are providing here at Connecticut Public Radio. We want to be able to bring you the visuals and some of the images behind the stories that we're doing. So uh, check out all of the work that's being done. Of course, you can access past episodes of Where We Live with Lucy Now Potential on the website as well. You can subscribe to podcasts, sign up for newsletters. There are lots of ways that we're trying to reach you where you are. So just our online presence is one of those ways. And your support of Connecticut Public Radio will help us not just on the radio, but on the digital side as well. 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call. We are going back to Colin in just a moment. And as Colin said earlier, your support during this hour helps support not only Connecticut Public Radio, but it shows your support for his show as well. 1-800-584-2788 and wnpr.org. And thanks so much in advance.
0: All right. We're back. Uh, One of the big stories that we didn't get a chance to cover last week because we weren't around uh, is the spread of COVID-19, which we're now calling what you used to call the coronavirus, which was a somewhat misleading term because a lot of things are coronaviruses. Uh, Lena Sun is a national health reporter for The Washington Post. She's one of the people covering uh, the outbreak and and spread uh, of COVID-19. She joins us now. Welcome to our show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, one of the in my, in my own primitive understanding of how these things uh, evolve, it seems that uh, ideally, if, if if ideally could be the right word here, in certain circumstances when there's the spread of something like this, uh, a, a new disease, it, you want it to stay trackable. This person got it from that person. That person got it from this previous person. It all started in this one place. Here's how it got here, and and so you have this kind of branching but identifiable tree of contagion. It seems as though COVID is moving out of that and there are places in the world where people have it and nobody knows how it got there. Is that a fair characterization?
2: Yes, that is an excellent fair and fair characterization. And that's why that's when people start to worry that When it goes in that direction, then it becomes wider community spread, and it's much harder for public health disease detectives to do their work to identify and isolate and prevent the spread, right? And if you think about um, the number of cases that are beginning to mushroom around the world, it becomes logistically impossible. And then public health really needs to think about, okay, if we cannot contain it, then we need to figure out a way to use our resources to make sure that the sickest people don't get it and die.
0: So maybe you could use Italy as an example. Italy is a place where there isn't that obvious, unless there's been some recent news, the way I understand it, there, there is COVID-19 there, not a real obvious explanation as to why.
2: Um, Yeah, and I think maybe they haven't, like, figured it out yet. I mean, I guess the better example would be Singapore. Singapore has one of the best healthcare and public health monitoring um, surveillance systems in the world. And they have shown they're really, really good at immediately jumping on cases and figuring out spread uh, from case to case. And in the beginning, they were able to track down, okay, this person went to the same shop or this was another employee – But now Singapore has over 80 cases, I think maybe over 86 cases, I'm sorry. The case counts go up almost by the hour sometimes. And they have a handful where they cannot figure out who got it from whom. And because we're seeing that this virus can be transmitted very easily in casual contact, um, even with people with mild symptoms, in taxis, in shopping centers, once it reaches that level, it becomes much harder for public health to sort of get their arms around it. I don't mean casual contact as in like you see me and you walk by me and you get sick. I mean, in order for you to get sick, I have to be infected, cough, sneeze within six feet of you. And but if you're everybody's working in the same offices or if they're on the same cruise ship or in the same family or going to the same church, you can see how through close contact that could spread.
0: Now, this is, as I understand it, one of these diseases where the good news is also bad news. So the good news is that you or I could have this be asymptomatic and get over it and never know that we had it, which is good news for us, but it might not be good news for other people we come into contact with in the way that you described. In other words, we having no idea that we contain this this contagion could be infecting much more vulnerable people.
2: Right. So 80% of the people who get this disease um, have, like, a very mild illness. And it looks a lot like flu, Um, but 20% become very severely ill. And the number of people who die, that's sort of a moving target, because in China that rate is much higher than it is outside the United States. And in China that rate is much higher in Hubei Province, which is and, and in Wuhan, the city, the epicenter of the outbreak. So the the concern is that you and I are healthy and we get sick and we cough on grandma and grandma is in her eighties and she has a heart condition or she has C O P. D or she has diabetes and then it's much harder for grandma to recover. So <laughs>
0: You know, in some ways, we've been through things like this. The world has been through things uh, like this in the past. I came up with thinking as I watched some of these things unfold, it almost seems like everybody's completely all institutionally. We're not all that well prepared as a world. I mean, what happened in Yokohama, just keeping people on a boat, uninfected people on a boat with infected people rather than just getting the infected people off right away and getting them into quarantine and then shipping people home. Uh, on a, to, to the U.S. on a plane with uninfected people, with a plastic sheet between the – I mean, it just seems like – have you ever – I want to ask people, have you ever been through this before? Do you have any idea how diseases spread? It just seems like there's an awful lot of, I don't know, naivete about it.
2: I think it's not naivete. I think what, what you have here is, you know, public health is not sexy. Public health is not cool. So public health does not get funded. If you're a local elected official uh, and you wanna show that you're doing something for your constituents, you can say, I built this bridge or I rebuilt this school after the hurricane. You want tangible things, but for public health to work, it's invisible right it's protecting us from diseases and that means people get trained people get resources so their labs do a better job it means that we help countries in far parts of the world like in africa and asia where their health public health infrastructure is not as strong help them to figure out diseases there because if you can stop the outbreak there it is less likely to come here right and This is something that always gets cut, and it's something that nobody ever wants to champion until after we have an outbreak, and then you see the White House going to ask for money. And, you know, this is one of those things like, I don't know, if you drive a car and you never change the oil or you never take care of it, down the road, something bad is going to happen to your car. It's going to be much more, more expensive to fix it down the road than if you had remembered to change the oil or do some more regular maintenance. That's sort of how you might want to look at it. Right.
0: Well, to your point, the Trump budget, uh, Brian Schatz, the U.S. Senator from Hawaii, tweeted this today. The Trump budget has $35 million from the Infectious Disease Rapid Response Reserve Fund and $25 million from the Public Health Preparedness and Response Program. Those sound like programs that might be fairly material to what we're talking about. Um, right. Yeah. So, Uh, I know you have to go uh, pretty soon. The word pandemic, I mean, is a word that we encounter a lot in movies that are scary. Um, Tell us a little bit more. How should we think about the word pandemic? It's not being, I don't think, used quite yet uh, about COVID-19. What does it actually mean?
2: So it's really, everybody seems to have like a slightly different definition of it. It's sort of like, you know, what the Supreme Court said about obscenity, right? Mm -hmm. Like You know it when you see it. But it's Everybody's definition is slightly different. It's when an outbreak goes from one localized place to multiple places that are having large amounts of spread, um, self-sustaining, um, it, it, it sort of in multiple countries and continents. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, has a very narrow definition of pandemic. And part of that is when they have declared pandemics in the past – they um, they have been criticized as being too um, eager to sort of cry wolf when it turns out the pandemic was not as serious. A pandemic just means that something has spread to a lot of places um, with this particular disease. It does not tell you if it's going to how deadly it is, like how severe it is, or how many people it's going to be killed. So in 2009, we had the H1N1 swine flu pandemic, and it was a pandemic. It went to many parts of the world, but it didn't turn out to be as severe as everybody thought, Um, luckily, right? It didn't kill as many people. And because it prompted a lot of people to um, spend money on vaccines, and then the vaccines were developed too late because it takes months and months to build, build a vaccine, organizations like the WHO are reluctant to sort of make these Declarations, but in many parts of the world now, um, health systems are preparing for a pandemic emergency. What to do? Because if you if you wait until then, it's going to be too late. And that includes making plans for treating people who are suspected of having the disease, for protecting healthcare workers, for figuring out ways to um, focus on those who are the most sick, and keep out the people who are the worried well like the people who think that because they sat next to an Asian person on the plane, they need to get tested for coronavirus. That kind of racism is unfortunately taking place all over the country. All
0: right. Lena Sun, I know you have to go. Do you have time for one more question or do you have to run? I
2: do have, you know, no, I have time for a couple more questions.
0: Okay. So, I mean, in terms of how this does end, uh, um, is it likely that a, that, um, a vaccine comes online soon enough to be helpful with it? Or is this more a kind of thing that, Peaks and stabilizes somehow
2: I think well, you know the problem is like you know almost every hour if you talk to these yes. folks they're changing they're based on the evidence right of that's coming out, I think the feeling is that this could be endemic, which means that it could be with us um, you know always, uh, and over time our our the folks here in the United States will build up some kind of immunity. Um, uh, but right, uh, the worry is that it's a new virus and so it's a new virus and it doesn't really know what it wants to be when it grows up. And there's always that worry with a new virus that as it spreads among more and more people, thousands and thousands of people, that it will mutate and change in a way to become more severe when it attacks you. Right now, that hasn't happened. Um, so there is a, there are some people who think that because it's a respiratory virus. It will behave like flu and cold, and then when we hit the summer weather, when it's hot and it's humid, the virus will not be able to really hang out, and it will just sort of decrease. The only trouble with that theory is that Singapore is hot and humid, mm. and the virus seems to be doing very well. Um, uh, but and the other hope is that, you know, it will – the Chinese are saying that it's starting to come into decline, that there's not that many new cases Um, that remains to be seen because the Chinese data does not give you enough information to really make that determination. And I think the hope in the United States is that at some point in the next week or two that they will do kind of testing to see how widespread it is in the community here. Right right now we only have like, I don't know, 35 cases or something. But if you do this testing um, called sentinel surveillance where certain cities – Uh, will be testing their flu specimens. If they're negative for flu, then they will test them for coronavirus. You'll have a sense of knowing just how much coronavirus is out there in the community and then figure out what's the best way to act. And if there's a lot, then we might see um, some of the measures put in place in the United States that you have seen in Asia, like um, limiting mass gatherings or um, you know, having schools stay out for longer, that kind of thing.
0: Um, I'm going to let you go now because I know you've got a busy day. You're uh, covering one of the biggest stories in the world. But Lena Sun, health reporter for The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, All right. Let me just tell you about some things that are going to happen in the next few minutes so that you'll know. Uh, We are going to have a segment uh, about cheating uh, in sports and whether or not cheating is kind of a a window or a mirror uh, onto uh, other aspects of our society right now. You can probably guess where my thoughts are headed here. Um, I also, and then uh, right at the end of the show, at the very, very end of the show, uh, the nice people are going to come back and ask you to support public radio. I hope uh, you will strongly consider doing that. Uh, I want to also uh, take this moment to thank Betsy Kaplan, uh, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, uh, who has done such a great job of putting this show together and finding a great guest for us. I also want to thank our uh, great interns, Khalil Khalil Rahman and Maxine Filovan. Uh, Maxine's uh, on the phones today. Cat Pastor uh, is our new board op. Nobody can replace Kayon Wolf, but on the other hand, Cat Pastor is Cat Pastor, and that's pretty darn good right there. So uh, we're excited to be back. We're excited to have new shows. We're going to be talking about hotels on Wednesday. And on Thursday, we're going to talk about a scenario. What if Bernie won, then lost the election to Trump, and then some of the Bernie states wanted to secede? All right. All kinds of exciting things coming up here. Stay with us. So, cheating. There's a lot of it going on in sports. Maybe there's always some kind of baseline level of cheating going on in sports, but an awful lot of it has come to the fore recently here in the U.S. We mainly know right now about the cheating scandal that has plagued Major League Baseball, the sign-stealing scandal that's resulted in all kinds of kind of related discord. But uh, Michael Bauman, who covers sports culture and politics for The Ringer uh, and hosts The Ringer MLB show, has kind of looked at it maybe a little bit more globally, or at least, as they say, across the pond so michael first of all welcome to our show thanks for having me on and uh, so maybe we'll just put the uh, houston astros uh, on the back burner for a second you looked at uh, at least two other sports played in the united kingdom that are having kind of similar issues well not similar issues but cheating issues anyway tell us about those
5: I have a good friend who has been trying very hard to get me into rugby this off season. Uh, (laughs) And so because of that, I've become aware of uh, one of the big clubs in England called Saracens has been Finding creative ways around the Premiership Rugby salary cap. Uh, essentially, the club chairman has been going in on real estate investments, giving players no show jobs, like the kind of stuff that we would categorize as like recruiting violations in American college sports. And they've been, for next season, relegated to the second tier of their league. It's a huge scandal over there and a, a draconian punishment. And then uh, in the world of soccer, Manchester City has been banned from European competition for two years for lying to to investigators uh, for doing dirty bookkeeping in, in attempts to defraud regulators. Uh, so they've been banned for two years of European competition, which if that bans upheld, it would be a huge story in English and world soccer. I have just started thinking about these things because they seem about equivalently titanic as the Astros sign-stealing scandal, even though the, the methods of cheating themselves are very different.
0: Right. And so uh, over there in the rugby and the soccer slash football uh, situation, one of the common threads as I understand it is kind of plutocrats with really deep pockets getting involved in these sports where there are, as you say, the, uh, uh, the effectually there are salary caps, the equivalent of salary caps, but these guys have such deep pockets that the, tend- the temptation to want to spend a lot on on high caliber players is big.
5: That's right, and that's particularly in the case of Man City, uh, where they essentially have the have state wealth from the UAE, and there are a couple other big uh, European teams in soccer that his these essentially countries have invested in them as PR arms, and uh, they're they're able to buy up all the good players. And so that's you know that's a complicated issue just on its own. Uh, but UEFA, uh, the governing body over there, has instituted financial regulations to try to not level the playing field, but at least keep it from getting to the point where one team can just buy up you know, literally all the good players.
0: So you know, let's go back to the United States for a second. When you have a cheating scandal of the magnitude of the one in Major League Baseball right now, there's sort of these two paths that they, they kind of try to walk down at the same time. One path is we have a major very serious cheating scandal, which we're taking very seriously. And the other path is we have a cheating scandal, but it's not so bad that you should lose faith in the sport or really regard everything that's happened over the last two or three years as utterly fraudulent. Mm -hmm. And they've sort of tried to take each line. Rob Manfred had that, the commissioner of baseball, had this bizarre moment where he, you know, as a way of arguing for against taking the World Series trophy away from the Astros, said it's just a piece of metal, which is a little bit like the Pope saying, These are just a bunch of stories. We have no idea whether they're true or not. Uh, So maybe say a little bit more about how you see that here and whether the same problem exists in these two other sports. Well, that's the whole crux
5: of of what I think makes this scandal different from something like PEDs. in my mind, there are two different taxonomical categories of cheating. There's one cheating just from the overwhelming desire to win, and this is, you know, you look at PDs in baseball, or in cycling, or, or in athletics, you know the individual athlete or small group of athletes wants to win so badly that they're willing to bend the rules and track whatever consequences come. And then there's the kind of cheating or disregarding of the rules that doesn't really view the rules as having any value in and of themselves. And so this is what we're seeing with Man City. And even though the Astros scandal was directed from the front office and the players, the Astros are particularly renowned for hiring people from from business backgrounds there is no difference between breaking the rules and getting away with it and playing by the rules because the rules, they're only valuable insofar as they carry consequences. And if you could avoid those consequences, then there is no right and wrong for its own sake. And so the Astros have been run by people who think like that, who have been trained to think like that. And that's what puts that scandal on the same level as San City, essentially saying, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, we're too important to to have the rules apply to us.
0: So, no, you know, it's always very, very dangerous to map directly from sports to anywhere else, to culture, to politics. On the other hand, I'm talking to somebody from The Ringer, so I'm going to take a stab at this and just ask anyway. It seems as though the 2020 baseball season is designed to closely mirror the political situation. There are all kinds mm-hmm. of lawsuits springing up. There's angry words. There's a sense that the rules, as you say, don't, don't really matter that much or haven't mattered enough. You know, at the same time that we have a president who won't discloses tax returns, uh, d- tells his subordinates to defy congressional subpoenas, and there's just kind of a, a lot of rancor and ugliness in politics right now. You've got people in Major League Baseball, other athletes, saying these guys need a beat down, <laughs> you know, they, they really need to be punished for what they did, maybe by us or in our own way. I don't know. Is there a way in which some of this, I don't know if I can relate Boris Johnson to Manchester City or not, but is there a mm-hmm. way that some of this looks kind of all of a piece?
5: It's so obvious; that it almost seems lazy to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. And even saying that you know, the Trump administration, yeah, we're breaking the rules. What are you going to do about it? Which we've seen over the past three years and and, and change. Like that, just drilling down to that, uh, it undersells the wider societal problem. You know, what are all these gig economy jobs, if not naked attempts to circumvent or ignore regulations for? consumer protection or public safety? You know, what is Uber? What is Airbnb? You know These are, what is Amazon? If, what are these companies doing if not trying to ignore the rules? They view the rules as something to be gotten around, not something to be followed because they have their own value. And so I think when you look at what the Astros have done, what Man City's done uh, in particular, you know, Saracens, just because the money involved in rugby is so much less, it's hard, like it seems... A little grandiose to lump them in with that. But, you know, there is like we are so big, we don't have to follow the rules and sort of daring regulators who profit when these big teams profit to, to do something about it. And the only surprising thing looking at Carter societal trends is that these three leagues have chosen to do something about it.
0: All right, we're going to have to stop there, but there's some really interesting questions that we're going to continue to unpack here, uh, including do fines matter and things like that. We'll definitely get Michael Bauman to come back and talk some more about this. He covers sports, culture, and politics for The Ringer, hosts The Ringer, MLB Show. Thanks for doing this today, sir. All right, no problem. Say it ain't so, Joe, please, say it ain't so.
3: And you've been listening to The Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Tucker Ives, here with Lucy Nell-Pathanchel, the host of Where We Live, and we are wrapping up this hour of programming, asking for your support because it is listeners like you who decide that they want to invest in their radio station and invest in The Colin McEnroe Show, and they give us a call at 1-800-584-2788 or they go online to WNPR.org and they make their contribution there. So you can join them again at 1-800-584-2788.
4: And today, uh, because it is the start of our winter uh, fun drive even though it feels like spring out there <laughs> 63 degree <laughs> Man, winter I really fun I ride. really do have to get out there yeah um, but for a gift of $10 a month you can get our two uh, for not one but two of our brand new Connecticut public beanies uh, so when the weather gets colder maybe in the next month or for uh, uh, next uh, fall and winter uh, this is a great uh, pledge item and for this week only for every pledge for our new Connecticut public beanie we will also donate a hat and a pair of gloves to to a Hartford Public School student. So we're waiting on your call of support at 1-800-584-2788. Again, we're trying to raise $1,500 uh, before the end of the hour. And we've got some room to, to go. There's a great comment from Dan. Uh, yeah, Dan,
3: Dan says, Colin McEnroe is one of the very few sources I can listen to for politics and not feel like I'm getting dumber and on <laughs> subjects ranging far and wide. So, Dan says, here's the money I was giving to Andrew Yang's campaign. So if your candidate has dropped out, if you uh, have that money that you would uh, have been giving on a monthly basis to a specific candidate who has dropped out and you would like to redirect that money, why not give it to Connecticut Public Radio? That's one approach that we are all in favor of. So thank you, Dan, for your contribution uh, and your comment as well. You can join Dan at 1-800-584-2788.
4: Just uh, another minute before we head back uh, to regular uh, programming, but uh, we mentioned the Connecticut Public beanies for a gift of $10 a month. We've got these uh, great uh, Connecticut Public Radio wireless earbuds. We've got pint glasses. We've got socks. We have uh, everything uh, for you to thank you for supporting Connecticut Public. But think about what you're getting each every day when you listen to this radio station. The news, the information, the analysis, the entertainment. Uh, we're here for you just a few times a year. We ask you uh, to be there for us with a pledge of support at 1-800-584-2788. You can also go online to wmpr.org. Again, we're trying to raise $1,500. And then, this is also exciting for everyone uh, who uh, contacts us, uh, hopefully with a pledge. You can also be entered into a drawing to win an urban getaway at the study at Yale and New Haven, uh, featuring overnight accommodations for two, breakfast, two tickets to a performance at the Yale Repertory Theater. Uh, So again, we thank you uh, for your call now. If you have yet to pick up the phone, now's the time, 1-800-584-2788. Again, you can go to our website, wmpr.org. It's quick and easy, and you'll feel great knowing that you support your public radio station, Connecticut Public. And thanks.